we're in Genesis 3, get your Bibles, find your way back to Genesis chapter 3, your phone, your paper, whatever it is, right, get your eyes, uh, before your eyes this morning, Genesis 3.14, that's where we're headed. Now, <clears throat> before we, t- 10 years ago, you know, because we've said that a lot lately, but before we moved out here, um, we lived in Olathe, and the church that we were serving was in Overland Park, about, a park about seven miles away from our house, and uh, for the first couple of years, I just drove my car to the office every single time, and then I got into bicycling and thought, hey, I should ride my bicycle to the office. Uh, and so I would, I would do that pretty often. It would be the exact same route, only I'm on a sidewalk instead of the road. Um, but it really equated to being the difference between going 35 miles an hour and going about 10, if I'm honest, right, for my sake, which is not real fast even on a bike. Uh, and I discovered, though, just on these, as I traveled, right, at, at this slower pace on a bicycle, I began to notice these details of things that I'd never really noticed before, uh, never seen before. In fact, there was an entire pond uh, on one side of the road. I'd never seen this pond. It had ducks in it. had no idea, and I drove past this every single day in my car. Um, Genesis 3 is, is, is like that path that I took. And the two verses that we are in today are a lot like, like that pond. I mean, how many times in your life have you thought, I'm going to read through the entire Bible? And you start with Genesis, right? We always start with Genesis, and, and, and you really get to chapter 3 real quick. No one gives up before chapter 3 of Genesis, but you find yourself just cruising through this, right? You drive right by these words of the Lord to the serpent right here, and, and, and you don't notice them, right? You just kind of think, yeah, yeah, bad snake, crawl on your belly, you know, that kind of thing. Well, today what we're, what we're doing here is, is we are trading out our, our car for, for a bicycle. We are slowing down. Uh, and, and if you've never seen it before, I, I want to show you the pond that's here in, in these two verses. Uh, I want to show you the, the ducks that you've never noticed as you've cruised by in your car quite quickly. I, I, I want to show you here uh, in the cursing of Satan that God has embedded a, a, a hope of grace uh, for, for his condemnable people right then, right in this moment. Uh, and next week, we're going to stay on the bicycle because, you know, slowing down for this forces you to finish the path on the bicycle. You can't just switch halfway. Uh, and as we look at the second and the third judgment speeches that God gives, right, the first to, to Eve and then second to her, her husband and our federal head, Adam. So we'll look at that. Um, now, if, if you've not been with us these last couple of weeks, let me just catch you up real quick you know, previously on Genesis 3, um, we, saw Genesis, or we saw God created Adam and Eve. He created the first man, the first woman, the first husband, the first wife here, and he placed them in this beautiful garden called Eden, and he provided this kaleidoscope of fruit-bearing trees and said, they're all yours. Go eat of them. Enjoy. Feast upon these. But, but he forbid them from eating from one single tree, uh, a, a tree by the name of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it, the one thing. And, and then a, a serpent, which is really a, a fallen angel, Satan, uh, he, he, he leads Eve to these question, or rather to question God's goodness and to question the truthfulness uh, of God and, and to question God's intentions for, for her and Adam and forbidding them from coming to the, from eating of this one tree. And, and eventually Eve believes the serpent. Um, she ate the fruit. She gives some to her husband. He eats the fruit. Adam, he's present the whole time right there. And, and you know, so he's more rebelliously eating this fruit. Uh, and, and then they realize their nakedness, and they hide themselves from God. And, and when God came around and, and, and found them, right, they continue to hide in their shame. And, and, and then when God questioned, Adam blamed, uh, blamed God, and, and Adam blamed uh, his wife, Eve, right? And then he looks to Eve, and Eve like, blames the serpent. And, and now that's, that's where we are. And I know if you're like, wow, you could have done that in two and a half minutes. 
And you took previous two weeks to cover that? Anyway, <clears throat> right? <clears throat> so here are Adam and Eve, <clears throat> and, and they're looking on in this moment as God speaks to the serpent, and, and it's the heaviest, uh, the most, oh my goodness, we have ruined everything moment in history as God begins handing out this judgment upon everyone. And, and, and we're seeing here he starts with the serpent. And, and so that's, that's where we are. So you, you've got your Bibles before you, and we're going to read it. And I want you to follow along. And then I want you to keep it open so you can look back down and be like, oh, that's what we were talking about because I forgot a minute ago when we were reading. Um, that's what happens, I know. Anyway, Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. And we don't go real far today. We're going to end in verse 15. I've got to find it here. Okay. The Lord God has said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The grass withers, the flower fades. <clears throat> Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is our comforter. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who is working in us, your people, even on this November morning, even in this very moment. And please, today, right now, illuminate our minds, sanctify us, confirm our hearts in the faith, and, and and grow your grace in us as we dig into your word this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. <clears throat> so uh, again, remember we've been talking about God's covenant name, Jews, and then it's not, and then it is again. We see it here, uh, Yahweh Elohim, right? The Lord God there. Uh, and, and, and we're seeing it, right? That it, what's the Lord God do here? Well, well, he speaks to the serpent and he says, because you have done this, which raises this question, well, what exactly has the serpent done? And I know we're all... Well, generally not good things, right? He, he's disparaged the character of God. He's, he's lied, and in doing so, he's deceived Eve. He's, he's tempted both Adam and Eve. In short, he has orchestrated the first sin by the first man and, and woman. He, he, has, um, he, he has soiled paradise, if you will. He, he has corrupted the human race. He has brought sin. He has brought you know, ruin, which is a pretty bad list of things that he's done. So, so that's what he's, he's doing here. Now, before we go further, so you, you ever notice that after Adam and Eve sin, that, that God converses with Adam and Eve, right? He asks all these questions to, to Adam, and then he turns his attention. He asks all these questions to Eve, and, and they point to the serpent here, and he looks to the serpent, and not a single word comes out uh, as, in the terms of a question. And, and, and God is asking questions to, to, to the man and the woman because he's trying to draw out this confession, this repentance, or giving them an opportunity for it at least. And, and here, when, when God addresses the serpent, the, the fact that he's asking no questions here, um, he doesn't engage because... Uh, really, there's no point in, in doing it, right? He, he didn't ask questions uh, or, or listen to the serpent's explanation because there's no redemption to be had for the serpent. There, there's nothing to be done there. And so God really just gets right to the punishment of the serpent. Uh, still in verse 14, right? You got it right there. God says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the, the, the beasts of the field. And maybe you don't care about this, right? But I'm going to tell you this anyway. Uh, uh, there, there's a play on words going on in the Hebrew. And sometimes when we translate it, we don't get it. Where there's two words real similar, uh, right? If you glance all the way back, you've got it open. Genesis 3, verse 1, we're, we're told that the serpent 
was more crafty than any other beast of the field. More crafty, okay? Uh, but now he is told that he is more cursed than all the beasts of the field. And, and the Hebrew word for crafty, this is where it is, right? Uh, arum is, is the Hebrew word for crafty. And the Hebrew word for curse, very f- f- similar, is arur. Arum, arur. You hear it? Uh, so, so that's what's going on. It, it, even in the writing here is, is, is this, <clears throat> in the use of this curse word, right, uh, Technically, right, Arur would be the very first curse word in history if you want to get down to it. Uh, it also means I just used a curse word in this sermon. Uh, I feel edgy. Um, a- anyway, right, so, so even if you don't care about wordplay here, that's, that's intentional is why I tell you that, right? As Moses is writing this and the Lord is, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit working through him, that's intentional that you have this wordplay, and we just miss it in English. So. But if you don't care about that at all, that's fine. Uh, the, the serpent here is, is now receiving the first ever divine curse. And listen, God doesn't often himself actually announce curses on people, on creatures. He doesn't do that. In fact, the only other example that I could find of this is God declaring Cain cursed after, spoiler alert, it's going to ruin chapter 4 for you if you never made it that far in your annual reading, right? He murders his brother Abel. Uh, So that's what happened. And God pronounces the curse on him at that point. But anyway, here is this cursing uh, of the serpent. And the cursing has three aspects here. The, the first two of them are this crawling on the belly and this eating of dust, okay, of the ground. Uh, and those are directed primarily at the serpent itself, at the snake, the creature, right? And, and the third aspect of the curse is directed primarily, they both overlap, but primarily at Satan who possesses the reptile, uh, worded here in the ESV as, as his head being crushed or bruised, his head being bruised. Now, we'll, we'll consider these first two aspects to, together, like they're one, just because they kind of go together, uh, and then we'll get to the third one after that. So, <clears throat> second half of verse 14, again, you got it for you. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. <clears throat> now, most of us hear that, and our first thought is, oh, okay, so the snake, he used to have, like, legs or something, and, you know, somehow used to get around that way, and God's taken his legs away, and now he has to, to sliver, right? That's, that's kind of what it is. You've got to figure out a new way of getting around. That's God's judgment on him. We, um, and and I, I can remember our kids, actually. That was the way I've always pictured it. And I, I remember our kids one time drew this picture. I can't remember which one of you, but uh, drew this picture of the snake tempting Eve. And instead of legs, it was flying. I was like, I don't know why I never thought of that. Uh, <clears throat> it's just this flying thing. And, and that is certainly a possibility, Right? Everything's here that you, you, you kind of think maybe that's what's happened is that God has removed some uh, appendage that lets him fly or walk or, I don't know, whatever. Um, but it's also probably not the case. And, and not because God couldn't do it, not because, right, but, but because if, if this is to be taken actually, literally, like totally literally, then snakes today would actually need to be literally eating dirt and dust for their food. Um, I haven't done a lot of research into snakes, but as far as I know, they eat cute little mice and Florida, they eat pet cats, things like that, right? Um, so, so more likely what's going on here is there's a, a symbolic aspect to this cursing that, that God is doing here. And uh, God is taking what, what's, what's reality for the snake and, and attaching to it this new significance. So, so, so the snake's, you know, distinctive way of slithering on his belly, right? It's, it's a place of shame and, and guilt, a, a phrase that means that now, and it didn't used to. That, that's forever tied to the creature now that we call this snake, In in, in Psalm 44, 25, uh, the psalmist is praying there, and and he says this, For our soul is bowed down to the dust, our belly clings to the ground. There's this lowliness. You you hear it, in in fact, in the moment as as the psalmist is praying, right, he's confessing this shame, he's confessing this guilt, 
uh, and it describes it as crawling on their bellies. Now, the, the second aspect of the curse here is that the serpent is going to eat uh, dust from now on, right? That's, that's his meal every day, just more dust. Um, and it's an expression that just has this idea of total defeat of humiliation, which will come into use later here. Um, but, but we still use that today, right? Typically, you're, you're trash-talking someone in a, a race of some sort. The phrase, you know, eat my dust, maybe Mario Kart or something like that. I, I, I don't get to do it very often in a real race. I, I've hit that point now where every one of my kids can beat me in a 50-yard dash. Um, so I don't get to say that. But, but we still use that phrase today. Uh, and, and it's also, right, it's a very biblical expression that we, we, we see places. Psalm 72, 9, it's, it's, it's written about King Solomon, not by King Solomon, but about King Solomon. And, and in the prayer, the, the author of this psalm says, may his enemies lick the dust, right? This is this, this statement there, right? Micah 7, 17, in the midst of a prayer for God to defeat their enemies that have been overpowering them, Micah prophesizes that God will bring victory over their enemies. And let me quote this right. He says, they shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. And it goes on, right? They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. They shall be in fear of you. And you, you begin to see that aspect. So, so, yes, maybe God transforms the snake here to slither and to lick the dust at this point. Maybe that's what's going on. Perfectly reasonable explanation. Um, perfectly, yeah, anyway. Uh, but, 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 Without a doubt, there is this shame being attached to that symbol. Uh, and now at this point, either way, it's, it's fair for us to kind of ask this, if you haven't gotten there. Why in the world does the snake himself, like the creature, get punished? Wasn't he kind of just the innocent bystander and Satan possesses him? And it's like, what, what did, I was just here and then I didn't know what was going on, right? Um, it, it's Satan who actually commits this evil. <clears throat> Here's why. And I'm sorry, Peter, but... But God made animals to serve, anim to serve humans, and, and that's not been the case of what's actually going on here. And, and sure, the snake is just the instrument in this instance right here, but, but God punishing the instrument really is showing his profound love for his beloved people, for his image bearers, for Adam and for Eve. You know, a, a little bit, and this is just a loose analogy, a little bit like a father seeing his child hit by another child with a stick. Right? And he goes over there and he breaks the stick and tosses it off to the ground. And, and, and what did the stick do? I was just sitting there until he picked me up. And it's a, just a little bit like that. Okay. So this, this brings us then to verse 15. And, and this is where we see the third aspect of the curse that God is, is promising or pronouncing upon the serpent here. And, and on a deeper level, right, he's ultimately pronouncing this on the devil himself. Have a look. The first bit, we'll do it a little bit at a time. Uh, the first bit says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And enmity is not a word we use often. We don't go, I'm so enmity at you or anything like that. Right? It's, it, it is this form of, of hatred. That's enmity. It's this hostility, right? It's often attached to violence. It's, it's, uh, and and this, this enmity becomes true on two levels here. The, the first one is in regards to the creature itself. Now, I know some people actually like snakes. They do. Um, but some people also like spiders. Some people like marmites. Some people even like the Yankees. Uh, it doesn't make these things good. <clears throat> so, so some people just like weird things. That's the way it is. But, but you know, the, as a general idea, even today, people hate snakes. 
Um, it, it, we're all a little bit like Indiana Jones, right? At, at, least, at least with the venomous snakes. And I know some of you are like, ring snake, uh, right? And that's fair. But you, you put a venomous snake in front of you, you're going to get a little nervous. Now, uh, John Calvin said that our response to snakes serves as well because, uh, as he says, as often as the sight of a serpent inspires us with horror, the memory of our fall is renewed. Now, I don't know if it always does that for you, but it should, right? You see the snake, there's that fear, you, you see it slithering on the belly. That's an image for you and I to remember, right? That's the sin of Adam and Eve that you and I have inherited. It, it brings our mind back to us. It also reminds us just of Satan's evil intent towards us. Now, there, there will certainly be enmity between Eve and, and Satan themselves, right, in particular, uh, before the, the serpent had seemed so wise to her, right? She's listening. Look at this guy. He might be onto something. This God. You know, so she's listening. She's trusted uh, the serpent. She, she was even so inspired by everything that the serpent had to say, uh, you know, this distrust, to, to develop this distrust for God, and, and finally to sin, thinking, you know what? This guy's onto something. Let's do it. Let's go eat that fruit. And, and, and God continues here, right? Then speaking to Satan. So that's where that is. Uh, saying, that there will not only be enmity between you and the woman, but now, you got it in front of you, look at this, right? Um, now, between your offspring and her offspring. So it's going to go beyond that. Uh, we, we, we long, <clears throat> as, as the church, as Christians, I, I think, as, as just people in, in, in the society, we long uh, for there to be unity, I think, just in general in the world. That, that is a theme you hear in the church, outside the church, but the biblical reality is this. There, there are two humanities in the world. I don't mean you can look out and always say who's who here, but there are two humanities in the world. One, one humanity consists of those who, like Satan, live in rejection to God. They live in rebellion against God, God's ways, his, his words. Uh, this is the humanity that we often refer to as, as unbelievers, the world, things like that. They, they may be very kind people who do some very kind and good things. Don't hear me wrong. Uh, and yet they do not love God. They do not trust God. They, they, they are not under the reign of, of Christ in their hearts. <clears throat> um, and in fact, when the Pharisees came to Jesus and they're saying, you know what? <clears throat> Abraham's our father, and they're making this big declaration about, you know, that's our lineage, and, and Jesus claps back at them saying, that's, that's not the line of humanity you are. Je Jesus, right, John eight forty four, he says, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do the father's desire, right? That's, that's not the line you're, you're, you're coming down. And, and, and we see that, right? So that's, that's one line of humanity. The other line of humanity is, you guessed it, the, the redeemed, right? Th those who through the gospel... Uh, have been made to love God, th those who have been made to trust the, lo the Lord, to trust the Lord Jesus, and, and those who, who, whose life is, is under the gracious influence of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about Christians here. We are, you know, that's why the New Testament refers to us as citizens of a different kingdom, or as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 1.13, that God has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. There's a switch there from one humanity to the other. And, and, and you might find this interesting, right? When, when we read here in Genesis 3.15 uh, that God says there will be enmity between your offspring and offspring. Uh, in, the, in the ESV it says offspring there. I think most translations say offspring there. Uh, and it's a good translation. It's a right translation. I wouldn't change it all. But just so you know, uh, both instances of, of the word offspring here are, are, are the Hebrew word that means literally seed, right? That, you know, um, so we're going back to, you know, between your seed and, and her seed. Uh, and, and with that in mind, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 13, 38. Um, 
he describes the two humanities here. He says, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. You, you, you heard it, right? I'm going to break it down like you didn't hear it, right? The good seeds and the weeds. Those are the two, two seeds here, a.k.a. The, you know, the weeds, a.k.a. the bad seed. Now, now, Jesus later goes on to actually describe these two humanities in a few different ways. Some of these you're going to know, right? The, as the wheat and the chaff. Uh, as the light and the darkness, as the sheep and the goats, so, you know, the, the two lines of humanity and, 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 and our Lord makes that very clear. We see that everywhere. Now, um, God in this speech to the serpent here is, is speaking about spiritual children, right? Not little serpents. Uh, and, and we're going to see that real explicit here in, in, in Genesis 4 when, when there is great enmity between <clears throat> Eve's two biological sons, Cain and Abel, which I know I already ruined for you. And, and, and so in short, the offspring of Satan are those who are in rebellion against God, and the offspring of Eve are those who are in covenant with God through grace. And you and I, we, we feel that division today. Maybe not daily, not all the time, but we, we feel it. You know, as, as Richard Phillips says, there is constant conflict between those under Satan's reign and the people of God. And this is why Christians are persecuted while we, in turn, strive against the kingdom of this world with the gospel. We feel that. Now then, we are a few weeks away from, from Advent. I know the year has gone quickly, but that's where we are. We're a few more weeks than that away from uh, Christmas Day. This time of year, you know, is when the churches of our Lord reflects on the incarnation, the, the, the birth of Jesus. And as, as part of that process, we, we, we read all these various prophecies, right, about, oh, this is talking about Jesus, this is talking about, you know, the coming of our Lord. And, and, and we read, right, one of the shortest in distance from, you know, announced in reality is, is, is Matthew one twenty three, where the angel of the Lord came to, to Joseph and he, and he said of, of Mary, his betrothed, like, like engaged, um, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will, and listen to this, he will save his people from their sins. Uh, what beautiful words of hope to know that, right? To know that everything that was ruined in the garden, God was going to work to put right. But actually a few weeks before that, right, recorded in Luke 1.35, an, an angel of the Lord visited this, this young betrothed woman, Mary, right, Joseph's fiance, if you will, and, and, and told her that she will conceive and bear a child who will be called Holy, the Son of God, right? And, and so we go back, a, a, backwards this way for you, right, uh, back just a little bit, but, but the Lord gave us a, a glimmer of hope 800 years before that when the prophet Micah foretold that this child was going to be born in the city of Bethlehem, of all places, right? And, and about, the, about the same time that Micah is prophesying, uh, Isaiah declared a prophecy, one that you're probably going to know, right? It's put to music real well. Uh, for us, for, for to us, a child is born. I can't even not hear. Who is it? Candle. Handle. <laughs> not candle. Handle. Yeah. <clears throat> for, us, for unto us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then you repeat it like six times. But... Right, so we're seeing it there. We get to the Psalms. We get all over the Old Testament, right? The, 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 all over Scripture. It's all pointing to Christ. We see it left and right. We see it over and over. Uh, but the very first moment, the very first moment that, that, that the Lord God, right, um, 
that, that he gives us this hope, this picture. The first moment the gospel is mentioned uh, is, 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 you know, that is, is right here, right? That the sin of Adam for our own sin, the first prophecy, that the sprouts of the gospel right here in Genesis 3.15. And that's one of the reasons this is such a beautiful passage, right? And, and this is the pond we're coming to in case I don't want you to miss it, right? That we, we drive past. Um, it, it, you see, in the immediate aftermath of the fall is, is this God-given Easter egg, if you will. You, you look at it, right? The words are right there before you. And God is saying of the offspring of the woman and the serpent, uh, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I know all those pronouns make it a little confusing. We'll fix that in a minute, right? That, that's the very first sign of God's covenant of grace. I'm not going to leave you guys in your sin. He hadn't even addressed them really yet, right, properly. And, and, and you know, this is going to be the remedy, right, for, for the covenant of works which, which Adam and, and Eve have disobeyed and thus broken. Really, Adam, right? But, but this covenant of grace will, will, will not be properly inaugurated until Abraham. That's true. It's not going to be properly consummated until Jesus. That's true, right? But, but here, in, in the midst of, of, of this cursing of Satan, right, even, even before he addresses Adam and Eve, and and it's kind of amazing. In fact, you ever notice when people get disciplined, almost always they're, they're pulled aside, right? You're pulled into an office and the door's shut so not everyone can eavesdrop or, you know, you pull someone away at the team or whatever it is. You pull your kids into a side room instead of just disciplining from everyone. Um, but, but here, God curses the serpent. He gives this discipline, this punishment really, um, in the presence of Adam and Eve while they're just sitting there watching this go down. Like, ooh, this is not good. What's coming for us, right? Um, and, and, and so... He's, you know, he's doing it in the presence, and, and why, right? Certainly so that they can see that God is bringing about justice, so they can see God's wrath against the evil that the serpent has done, but also so that Adam and Eve, even at this moment, would know that God loves them, so that they would feel his mercy as they hear this promise of, of, of salvation. Would they know all the details? Certainly not, but they see that God is going to do something here. Now, also, you, you ever notice that all the epic moments, not all of them, most epic moments in, in history, right, in, uh, well, just general history or sports history, they all get these great nicknames, right? The, some of you are not old enough for this, but, you know, way back in the day, before we knew what hockey was as a country, really, uh, Russia, or U.S. beat Russia, and it's got this great name, the Miracle on Ice, they call it, right? Um, or if you're not into sports, right? The Americans, they reject the taxation of, of England, and they hop on their boat, and they throw tea overboard, and it gets this great name, the Boston Tea Party. And they go on, right? The Thrilla in Manila, uh, the Hand of God Gold, D-Day, the, the Trail of Tears, the Shot, the Great Depression, the Ice Bowl, uh, the, the Music City Miracle, right? Long before all those, though, was, was this moment in Genesis 3.15, and, and it, too, has a few nicknames. And, and here's what it is, the, uh, the Proto-Evangelium. It's Latin. I don't know why everything has to be in Latin. It is. Um, right? But here's what it means. It's Latin for the first gospel. And it's got this great nickname, right? It, and, and sometimes it gets, it gets this Spanglish-like treatment of Latin and English, and it's just called the proto-gospel. I, I think I titled that on your bulletin. Uh, the proto-gospel, the first gospel. That, that's what it is, right? If you write in your Bible, you just write there, the proto-gospel, or the first gospel. Or if you want to go proto-evangelium, go for it, right? Um, now, I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I should probably explain how this strange phrase announces the coming of Jesus, right? And in, in this... Final phrase here, right? He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, the pronouns here are not plural. They are singular. We, we're no longer talking about 
all people. We're no longer just talking about the, the two humanities, if you will. Uh, now God is talking about Satan and an individual who will strike the head of the serpent. Uh, super simple. This is about Jesus and Satan. <clears throat> you, you, you know uh, that moment when, you, when, when you've just messed up so bad Right? You can think back sometime in your life and you're like, oh, I cannot believe I did this. Right? And, 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 and you just want someone with more wisdom, more power, more money or authority, more everything to just step in and fix this for you. Right? That's what we're seeing God do here. The one who has more. He's stepping in and he's fixing this. God is, is taking charge in a very real sense. What, what is being revealed here is that this battle is no longer between, between man and, and the devil. Not anymore. It is now between God and the serpent, right? He has shown up for us. Uh, God has stepped in, hallelujah. Now, now, let me explain the imagery that I keep failing to actually explain to you. Um, <clears throat> first, let me just fill in, I'm going to cough here. <clears throat> That's a tricky sound thing. Whoever did that, you didn't do it, but that was great. Okay, <clears throat> um, here's the pronouns, pronouns filled in. I'll read the line again, like it is, just with the pronouns. Uh, Jesus shall bruise Satan's head. And Satan shall bruise Jesus' heel. Okay, and I know we read that and you think, well, okay, so they both just bruise each other? Like they get in a fight and they they just bruise each other and everyone just goes home at the end of the day? Is that what's happening here? It sounds that way to us, right? But but this is old Hebrew. And and so you got to know that, you know, the word used for bruise here has a a broad uh, semantic usage here, right? And and it's not just bruise in the way that you and I think of a bruise, right? It it, it can be that, like a yellow, purplish thing. But it can also be an absolute crushing. And, and more than that, you, you know, in Old Hebrew, you've got to look at the, the, the word bruise in its, in its context. How is it being used? Because they're not used the same way in each part of the sentence here. It's, a, it's an image here of a, of a battle between a man and a snake. You can picture that much, right? And, and the snake is there, and it strikes at the man's heel. Um, and it causes some pain. It causes some damage. It causes suffering. It's, it it definitely is not a good thing. But, but the man's foot comes down upon the head of the snake and it twists, right? Crushing the, the head's snake. Or, sorry, the snake's head. Um, that, that's the thing going on here. I, I don't know, a couple years ago I was in Annenberg Park and this copperhead, I was jogging, this copperhead comes across the thing and I stop and I pick up a stick and I had this image of like, oh, I should crush him with my heel. That'd be cool. But then I remembered, oh, but, but he's going to strike my heel. That's not good. Uh, so I used this stick, and anyway, twisted it all and, and all that. Anyway, the, the, in the imagery of, of Genesis 3.15 here, though, right, the, the, the man is injured, but, but the serpent, the serpent is dead. That, that's the, the, you know, the, the more crushing of the two things ever here. You know, do you want your head bruised, or do you want your heel bruised? And, and, and that's an obvious answer, right? You, you, so we, we kind of see that. There's a cost to it, though. You ever, you ever seen someone with, like, a spider, a wasp, get up their sleeve? They do that dance thing, and they scream like a girl, even if they're a 40-year-old man. Um, right, they, they, you know, the man gets stung, but in the process of the whole thing, he actually kills the wasp, and it's squashed. The, the wasp is defeated. The wasp is dead. Now, we, we know from the Gospels that, um, that Satan will bruise Jesus' heel when he repeatedly tries to defeat Jesus during his earthly ministry, you know, including the, tempting him in the wilderness, right? But, but the greatest bruise, the greatest bruise begins on the day of, in the script, you know, when the scripture talks about Satan having entered the heart of Judas to portray Jesus. 
And of course, Satan's final strike is when the nails, like fangs, right, are, are driven through the hands of, of Jesus. And after his last breath, as, as Jesus' lifeless body is laid in the tomb. Ah, but this is also the moment, right, that Jesus bruises the head of the serpent of Satan. The, the moment he begins crushing the head of the serpent. And it continued on that Sunday morning when, when Jesus raises from the dead and defeats death. Right? Because he has, he has provided atonement for, for those who are in faith. And, and Jesus will finally twist his heel on the head of the serpent at his triumphant return. As uh, Augustine said nearly 1,700 years ago, the devil was conquered precisely when he thought, when he thought to be conquering. Namely, when Christ was crucified. For at that moment, the blood of him who had no sin at all was shed for the remission of our sins. You see it now. On the very day that sin enters the world, God is telling us how the devil is going to be slayed. He's telling us how sin will be defeated. He's, he's telling us how death is going to lose its sting, how we are going to be redeemed. And, and we know from our place in history that, that Jesus has done what, what Adam failed to do. He has obediently kept the covenant and he has taken the wrath of God that you and I deserve and he has restored our relationship with God. Further, he has indwelled us with the Holy Spirit. We learn in Romans 16 that we, whose faith is in Jesus, we participate in the crushing of Satan even, right? As, a, as, as the reign of Jesus grows in our heart, as, as we share the gospel with others who come to believe, as, as we are sanctified and, and we learn to love God and to trust God and obey God, and, and as that aspect is being put back. And, and all this is, is why, and, and we're going to end right here, all this is why the, the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 16.20 can say this. He can say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Right? The crushing has begun. But we still can't wait to see it eliminated completely, right? At the return of Christ, when we are glorified, we no longer are even tempted to sin. What a glorious day that will be. So that, that brings us to the end. And I, if I'm honest, you know, as I'm preparing this, I get to the end, I'm like, this is not, I really love application in a sermon. And you come in here and you think, what, what's the application here? And I think the application is something simple, like, like the fact that you are beloved by God. Right? He, he had the plan since before time, before the sin, but, but it's announced right here that he begins to give us this picture. You're not stuck in your sin. I, I think the other application here is, is no matter what you've done or what suffering you find yourself going through, God is for you. He's fighting for you. He's always been fighting for you, and he always will continue to fight for you as his children. Find some, find some encouragement in that. Uh, let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please make the deep truth of your mind-boggling grace to us through Jesus. As first spoken here in Genesis 3.15, please make it so real, make it so ingrained, so constant that the doubt is unable to find a foothold in our hearts. It just slips out. As we in a moment, Lord, as we sing and as we prepare to come to your table, please prepare us to feast in faith upon the one whose body and blood have been given for us upon the cross. May we feast upon the body and the blood of the one who crushed the head of the serpent and the one who defeated death by raising from the grave. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.